0: Today's show is brought to you by SouthernAccentRestaurant.com. Use their online shop to create a Cajun and Creole dinner at home with custom sauces, filet powders, and voodoo paste. Don't feel like cooking? Order a pre-fixed meal for pickup. Welcome to episode number two of Last Call with Richard Krauss, the podcast dedicated to remembering the tales and cocktails from my favorite bars and restaurants. I spent 17 years slinging drinks, and now I'm slinging stories. Sometimes there is truth in advertising. Today, the window of McSorley's Old Ale House in Manhattan's East Village bears a slogan with which there can be no argument. We were here before you were born. McSorley's has been there so long, it celebrated its 68th birthday, the year Betty White was born, and April Showers by Al Jolson was a number one hit song. May come your way. Today I'll tell you the history of the oldest Irish saloon in New York City, a place where everyone from Abraham Lincoln and Hunter S. Thompson to Wavy Gravy and Teddy Roosevelt passed the day, two beers at a time. First though, let's begin our conversation with Rafe Bartholomew. He's the author of Basketball, A Love Story, Two and Two, and Pacific Rims. His work has appeared in Slate, the New York Times, the Chicago Reader, and other leading online and print publications. Several of his stories have been honored in the Best American Sports Writing Series, but we're not here to talk sports today. I asked Rafe to stop by because he literally grew up at McSorley's. His father, Bart, worked there for 45 years. The family lived upstairs for a time, and on the weekends, he'd help out his dad get the place up and running. And later, in his 20s, he continued the family tradition and worked behind the bar. His book, Two and Two, McSorley's My Dad and Me, is a great read about fathers, sons, and one great bar. We began when I asked him about the way McSorley's has hung on to their history and traditions for more than a century and a half.
1: That's one of the things about the bar that is unique in this era or, or very rare to find almost anywhere, certainly in New York, which feels like it turns over. I, I'm 38 now and I think I may have seen four or five different New Yorks over the course of my lifetime. And it's not just one of the wonderful things about McSorley's it's not just the uh, the oral tradition, the history, all of that part of the bar. It's the ways of doing it's the the way that the, the entire bar operates the cash till that only has space for singles fives and tens and we, we put the twenties in front with a with a paperweight on top of them the the way we wash the mugs in in what appears to some to not be up to snuff the the two vats of you know hot scalding hot water look it is so hot I trust it. I have seen the results. I believe it is safe. It is clean, but it doesn't. I often wondered out. about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's all old school. Everything there is old school, and although there are, someone could come in and give us a lot of smart reasons to update certain aspects of the bar. The magic of it is that no. We always keep it the same. We always do things the way they were done to almost every, any to, as the greatest extent possible.
0: I was going to ask, if someone would say, you know what, there's a better way of doing this, how would a new suggestion be met by the staff? <laughs> uh,
1: I, it probably depends. Uh, where the suggestion is coming from mm-hmm. uh the era in which the suggestion was made uh, who you ask who you suggested to the you know the um you know Matt, matthew Marr, the, the the previous owner who he actually passed away last january uh, 2020 um you know, the, who worked with my father owned it for most of my life and actually yeah, all of my life. And and uh, so his daughter, Teresa, is now, you know, is, is running the bar along with his son-in-law, Scotty. Uh, so even between those two, you know, and they're both still working there. So if you ask Teresa, the, one of the co-owners today, she'll, she'll probably smile and say, oh, that's a nice idea. And you know, I, we're probably not gonna do it because tradition is very important. And, you know, she will she'll put the kind face on it. You ask Scotty, he will give you the, you know, he'll probably grab his crotch and say, right here, I got your change. Uh, Uh, you know, and and then serve you some ale, you know, but but still, uh, you could get a jocular response.
0: We'll be back with lots more Rafe at the after party, right after I tell you the story of McSorley's old ale house, Houdini's handcuffs, Prohibition, and ale, light and dark. McSorley's Old Ale House on 7th Street in New York City's East Village, established in 1854, didn't let women in the bar until they were forced to by a court challenge in 1970. It was a strict rule that even included the bar's owner, Mrs. Dorothy O'Connell Kerwin, who inherited the bar from her father Daniel in 1939. At the time, regulars were terrified she'd renovate and modernize the bar, or worse, allow women to throw back a cool one on a hot day. Ah! What they didn't know is that Dorothy made a sacred promise to her father that she would keep things exactly the way they had always been. So for the next 31 years, she only stepped foot in the place twice during business hours. She'd occasionally stop by on a Sunday night to check on supplies and inspect the antique iron pot-bellied stove that warmed the place in the winter, but only after the beer bellies had all staggered home for the night. When two members of the National Organization for Women sued the bar under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and the gavel came down, District Court Judge Walter R. Mansfield said...
1: It may be argued that the occasional preference of men for a haven to which they may retreat from the watchful eyes of wives or womanhood in general, to have a drink or to pass a few hours in their own company, is justification enough. That the simple fact that women
0: are not men justifies defendant's practices. However, and there was a big
1: however in this case. The answer is that McSorley's is a public place, not a private club, and that the preference of certain of its patrons is no justification under the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution."
0: Dorothy's son Danny wanted his mother to be the first woman to drink a beer at the legendary bar, but she refused, citing the promise she made to her father. Instead, on August 11, 1970, Daily News reporter Marcia Kramer was the groundbreaker and was even featured in the paper raising a glass under the headline, Liberated at Last. But even a court order couldn't exactly drag McSorley's into the 20th century. Sure, women could drink at the bar, but they didn't get their own bathroom until 1986. I'm Richard Krause, this is Last Call, but we're just getting started with our story about McSorley's Old Ale House, so stick around. The history of McSorley's actually dates back to 1851, when 18-year-old John McSorley immigrated to New York City as one of the million immigrants fleeing the great hunger in the potato famine years.
2: All hands up in the Irish trot, all hands up in the Irish trot, all
0: hands up in the Irish trot, way down below. Like most of the other 133,000 Irish-born citizens in New York, a full 26% of the city's population, John arrived with no money, and he had to settle where the ship he came in on landed. When I came to this country... I... On my feet, and bridges, look now a city dweller, he was determined to bring a taste of Ireland to his new homeland. To that end, he staked out a spot in the bottom level of a tenement building in the Five Points neighborhood, a densely populated, disease-ridden, violent area in Lower Manhattan that was home to successive waves of newly emancipated slaves and Irish, Italian and Chinese immigrants. Charles Dickens wrote in his 1842 travelogue American Notes for General Circulation that the area reeked, quote, everywhere with dirt and filth. In the book Five Points, the 19th Century New York City Neighborhood, Tyler N. Binder writes,
1: Dickens' visit to Five Points made it fashionable for well-to-do New Yorkers to go slow. Visiting Five Points, as Dickens had done, with a police escort, to marvel at its poverty, and gawk at its displays of vice. Oh my god! Indeed the term slumming may have been coined there to
0: describe such tours. It was the original American melting pot and, as of 1854, it was also home to John McSorley's business, the Old House at Home, a working man's saloon patterned on his favorite public house in Ireland and located at 15 East 7th Street, just off Cooper Square, where the Bowery ends. 1854 is listed as the year of the grand opening on McSorley's website, but there's some debate about the date. City records state the building was built in 1858, but a document from 1904 in John McSorley's hand found at the Museum of the City of New York declares the groggery was established in 1854. I'm usually a stickler for facts, but I like a good story, and I figure when drinks are involved, sometimes the details get murkier than a warm, cloudy mug of India Pale Ale. On opening day, the place looked much like it does today. Long and narrow, there's two rooms. In the front, a wooden bar runs along the eastern wall. On the other side, there's low-slung wooden tables and chairs and a pot-bellied stove to keep customers warm in the winter. In the back room, there's more tables and chairs, a cast iron safe and a fireplace. These days, a portrait of John's great friend Peter Cooper, the founder of Cooper Union, hangs above the fireplace near a plaque that reads, be good or be gone. It was here, under a risque painting of a nude woman and a parrot, that beer flowed during Prohibition and illegal drinkers held court, slipping in and out through a side door. As a side note, the Prohibition beer was a home brew cooked up in wash tubs in the basement by a brewer named Barney Kelly. It was potent stuff, watered down with near beer, but it still packed a punch. One night a policeman dropped by and said, I
2: seen an old man up at the corner wrestling with a truck horse. I
0: asked him what he'd been drinking. He said, near beer in McSorley's. But hang on a sec, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to the early days. John didn't like cash registers, so coins were kept in bowls, folding money in a rosewood box. Like so many things at McSorley's, tradition rules, and while there is an antique register behind the bar now, no one ever uses it. Instead, money is thrown in a pile at the back of the bar. He also didn't trust banks and always kept his cash locked up on the premises. The safe is still there in the back room, although all that's kept in it these days are some artifacts. There were no stools at the bar, and for the comfort of his male patrons, no women either. It said John believed it's impossible for women to drink with, quote, "...tranquility in the presence of women," so he put a sign on the door that said, Notice, no back room in here for ladies. In John's time behind the bar, the only female presence welcomed through the door was a door-to-door peanut peddler named Mother Fresh Roasted who told tall tales about her husband dying from a lizard bite during the Spanish-American War. John had a soft spot for her and would sell her a beer on hot days. To show appreciation, Mother Fresh Roasted embroidered an American flag for him. which still hangs behind the bar. All other women, however, were met with a curt, madam, I'm sorry, we don't serve ladies, as they breached the doors. His regulars, or steadies as he called them, were Irish and German working men from the 7th Street neighborhood. His best customers had pewter mugs behind the bar with their names engraved with an ice pick. Carpenters, tanners, bricklayers, and teamsters frequented the place, Along with the local slaughterhouse butchers whose bloody aprons made such a mess, John covered the floor with sawdust to sop up the gore that dripped from their work clothes. The sawdust also helped soak up the poorly directed chewing tobacco expectorate aimed at the spittoons that lined the bar. Keeping with tradition for the last 80 years, McSorley's has purchased their sawdust from the same Long Island family. The floor was also good for something else. Back before cancer sticks were banned, if you asked for an ashtray, the bartender invited you to stub your cigarette out on the floor. As for the menu, well, this wasn't one of those elaborate Paris-style cafes that populated Broadway or Taylor's, the gilt and mirrored restaurant that catered to uptown ladies who lunched. Nope, the menu at the old house at home consisted of five-cent ale, light or dark, imputer mugs, and a free lunch of soda crackers, raw onions and cheese. In 1940, Joseph Mitchell, writing in The New Yorker said, present day customers are one to complain as some of the cheese Old John laid out on opening night in 1854 is still there. As for the onions, well, they were a staple at McSorley's, and at the end of the night, just before closing, John would often roast a three pound t bone over the glowing embers of the fireplace in the back room for his supper. For a side dish, he'd slice a loaf of French bread in half, cram an onion in the hollowed out middle, and chow down. It wasn't highfalutin cuisine, but it did help give the place its long running motto good ale, raw onions, and no ladies. To this day, two-thirds of that motto still holds true. The ale is tasty and raw onions are still available as part of McSorley's cheese platter. Also available behind the bar was tobacco and a selection of communal corncob pipes. Buy an ale and John would throw in a smoke on the house. Over time, every inch of available wall space has been filled with John's collection of memorabilia. It's a beer-stained exhibition of ephemera chronicling the highs and lows of the 19th and 20th centuries. Here's a quick list of some of the things you can take in between beers: banquet menus, Autograph, starfish shells, theater programs, political posters, pictures of horses, steamboats, comedy bosses. jockeys, actors, singers, assassinated statesmen, Garfield, McKinley, the London the Times, the Emancipation Proclamation, the great Fight. Lincoln's saloon life. Houdini's handcuffs, John Wilkes Booth wanted a poster. a corn cob a pair of hand-carved coconuts, an opium pipe. All that and more hang on the walls, but it's not just the walls that are decorated. Rumor has it that the great magician Houdini visited the bar and attached handcuffs to the bar rail after escaping from them on a dare from the bartender. Thing is, the serial number on the cuffs placed the date of manufacture after Harry Houdini's death. Years later, a commemorative coaster used at the bar recounted Harry's visit and suggested the iron bracelets might represent Houdini's greatest illusion so far. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you time traveling handcuffs. A more likely explanation comes from one of the bartenders who says the original set were stolen by souvenir hunters. The most talked about pieces aren't the Civil War prison manacles gifted to the bar by a customer who was one of the 45,000 Union soldiers imprisoned at Georgia's notorious Andersonville Prison. Or even the gold record for Love Stinks donated by the Jay Giles Band, or the collection of realist painter John Sloan's McSorley's inspired artworks. Nope, the most famous bits of décor hang above the bar. During World War I, McSorley's offered a turkey dinner to anyone heading off to war.
2: The Army asks your unflinching support to the end that the high ideals for which America stands endure upon the
0: earth. After a farewell dinner, the wishbones were removed, wiped down, and hung above the bar as a good luck talisman. Any returning soldier could come and reclaim their wishbone. The remaining bones denote the men who did not come home. Almost a century later, in 2011, the city's health inspector made them take the two dozen wishbones down for a cleaning, but they went back up and they hang there to this day. The health department must have really had it in for McSorley's in 2011. Here's the story. John's son, Bill McSorley, loved cats and at one point had 18 of the felines roaming around the place. No matter how busy, when it was time to feed the cats their hand-ground bull's livers, Bill would leave the bar, bang a pan and stand as the cats came from every corner of the bar. John Sloan captured the cats for posterity in his 1929 painting, McSorley's Cats. The tradition was passed down from owner to owner, and in 2011, when the health department passed a law banning bars from keeping cats, the last resident feline, Minnie the second, was reluctantly evicted. The cats may be gone, but not one piece of memorabilia has been removed from the walls since 1910 when John McSorley died in the second floor flat above the bar at 83 years old. It's overwhelming, but taking in all the paintings, photos and American history is guaranteed to make your eyeballs dance. Layer after layer of history reveals itself the more time you spend there. Tradition rules at McSorley's. Even though John changed the name from The Old House at Home to McSorley's Old Ale House, when, in 1908, he ordered a new sign to replace the one that blew away, he wasn't really tampering with history. The steadies always called the place McSorley's, no matter what was written on the sign out front. The history at McSorley's isn't just on the walls and in the tchotchkes, it's in the air, in the dust on the wishbones and in the wood of the battered bar. A year before he became president, on a snowy February night following his 1860 speech at the nearby Cooper Union, Abraham Lincoln visited McSorley's. Little is known about his stopover, but later, in memoriam, a huge horseshoe, rumored to be from one of the horses that pulled Lincoln's hearse, was added in tribute to a relief bust of the assassinated president. Ulysses S. Grant, Theodore Roosevelt, and John F. Kennedy all enjoyed presidential potent potables at the battered bar, as did musicians John Lennon and Woody Guthrie, corrupt New York City senator Boss Tweed, gonzo writer Hunter S. Thompson, and Nat Fain, who took the famous last photo of Babe Ruth, a copy of which hangs behind the bar. The first time most people north of 14th Street heard of McSorley's came with the opening of a show called McSorley's Inflation at the Theatre Comique on Broadway in 1882. Written by Harrigan and Hart, who were known as the Gilbert and Sullivan of the USA, the saloon-set comedy was the story of tenement landlord and bar owner Peter McSorley. He thinks his aspirations for public office are hampered by his wife's business, so he takes steps to shut it down. For over 100 performances, the barroom farce played to packed houses. One musical number, I Never Drink Behind the Bar, was particularly popular with audiences who sang along to its call and response chorus. That show began a long relationship between McSorley's and the city's artistic elite. Many years later, Norman Mailer and Arthur Miller came in for an ale. A drunk at the other end of the bar shouted something unkind about Miller's ex-wife Marilyn Monroe. Have you heard about Miller calmly approached the man and whispered something in his ear. The colour drained from the drunk's face as he got up and made a beeline for the door. For his part, Miller returned to his drink without further comment. Another literary giant, poet E.E. E. Cummings, was a regular who published I was sitting in McSorley's in his 1923 collection, Tulips and Chimneys. The poem begins, Outside it was New York and beautifully snowing, Inside snug and evil. He goes on to describe the slobbering walls, but gives a thumbs up to the beer, which he calls the ale which never lets you grow old poured from squirting taps. It's a lyrical ode to a place where comfort and camaraderie can be found on a wintry day. The best press the place ever got came from journalist Joseph Mitchell. He wrote for the Tony New Yorker, but was a poet of the streets, a chronicler of life in Greenwich Village, whose stories brought the neighborhood's characters to vivid life. His essays on McSorley's are classics. Eventually, they were bound in a book, McSorley's Wonderful Saloon, described by the publisher as an American version of Dubliners by James Joyce. My favorite line? The saloon opens at eight. Mike gives the floor a lick and a promise and throws on clean sawdust. McSorley's might not be New York's oldest bar. The Bridge Cafe, Ear Inn and Chumley's all predate John McSorley's business but it is one of the most colorful. It's sometimes hard to sort between the fact and fiction that swirls around the bar's legend. One thing is for sure, there's no arguing with their motto. We were here before you were born. They still only serve two kinds of beer, light and dark, and it's brewed specially for them by the Pabst brewery and it's served in 8-ounce steins. When you buy one, you get two, frothy and banged on the bar with some force by bartenders with white aprons covering garbage bags tied around their waists with leg holes punched out at the bottom to keep them reasonably dry and beer suds free. Of course, women are now welcomed and since 1994 when Teresa Mar De La Haba became the first woman to work the bar, the staff has steadily worked towards gender parity despite the gripes of the old regulars. Teresa now runs the bar and says the female to male ratio is approaching 50-50. Still. Tradition rules. In 166 years, only three families have run the place. The McSorleys, the O'Connells, and now Teresa, who took over from her late father, Matthew Marr. They still don't accept credit cards, and it is still, as Joseph Mitchell said, An utterly democratic place.
1: Mechanic in greasy overalls gets as much attention as an executive from Wanamaker's.
0: On my first visit there many years ago, I spoke to a bartender who told me he'd worked there for four decades. As you can tell, he said, I have trouble committing to things. I fell for the place then and there. And I'm not the only one. How much do people love McSorley's? Well, Rumor has it that the ashes of at least seven regulars, one housed inside a flask, are hidden away behind the bar, spending eternity at their favorite watering hole. If close friends of the dearly departed ask nicely, they might be allowed to have one more drink with their late friend. Time is frozen at McSorley's even if its East Village neighborhood is in constant flux. It'll be a great part of town once they finish building it, but McSorley's remains the same—a stubborn reminder of the old New York and the Irish immigrants who helped build it. John McSorley would be pleased. His tavern is still serving up a taste of Ireland, a pair of drafts at a time. That was Last Call, a history of McSorley's Old Ale House, but hey, stick around, it's time for the after party where we get to spend a bit more time with our guests. First up is Anastasia Miller, one half with Jared Brown of Mixology Limited, a consultancy and publishing company that specializes in anything and everything to do with spirits and mixed drinks. She told me about her first visit to McSorley's.
2: I think my favorite was, was the first time I walked in was in let's see, 19, late 1976, so after they allowed women in. Yeah. There was only one drawback, only one single drawback. I needed to go to the loo. And I was with my, my buddy, we, living in London, came to the US, uh, walked in, I said, you have a loo? And they, Over there. I'm like, where's the ladies? What ladies? oh dear then i realized there wasn't a saloon door to go into the loom. so i had to have my friend stand in front while three other guys and i were busy doing our business came back out again and i went okay now i feel better thank you and i thought i love this place any place that'll just go we're not serving you you're serving us at this point i'm like okay i'm here
0: they didn't and, get a ladies' room until 1986. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And even then, that was questionable.
0: When we go there in 20 years, it will be the same as when we went there 20 years ago.
2: And people will be very upset if it changes.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's
2: that's that is the point of it. I think you know there there's just standards that have to exist, and without the standards, what's the use in having anything new? I mean. You really have to have certain things just as they are. Don't change a thing and the world will be fine.
0: Find out all about Anastasia at mixelaney.com. Now let's spend some more time with Two and Two, McSorley's My Dad and Me, author Rafe Bartholomew, who joined me via Zoom from Michigan. Your father was the guy that made me fall in love with McSorley's on one of my first visits, and it was ages ago. We were talking. And he said, "Well, you know, I've worked here for uh, forty years. As you can tell, I've got a problem committing to things." <laughs> Which I thought was a great line, and made me fall in love That's with great. the place. <laughs> oh,
1: and I, I, I may have heard him drop that line a couple times, but yeah. uh, it's a good <laughs>
0: one. <laughs> and I know it's a, a, a pat line that he uses <laughs> with people, but uh, but it sucked me in, man.
1: I mean, there's, shoot, I mean, there's some lines, but there's also a lot of, I mean, you get a lot of authentic stuff, you know, it's not like, uh, it isn't a very packaged experience, you know, you you, you get what comes. (laughs)
0: That's right. That's right. Well, you describe growing up at McSorley's uh, to being a twisted version of heaven in the book uh, that you've written two and two. Uh, What did you mean by that?
1: well because it, it certainly uh, it's it isn't a ho- it's not a well, I think of it as a sacred place, but it is not a sanctuary in the in the uh, according to many of the standard re- religious traditions, you know, pick here it's not a it's not necessarily a house of traditional virtue um, just because <laughs> ale is a uh, beer, saloons there, places where people get loose, commit sins, uh, at least you know in the biblical sense. Uh, I think that, of course, the place means a lot to people, and and the fellowship and the storytelling and the community is is a very good thing. But it is, uh, at a very definitional level, a a place where it, part of the vice trade. Um, so. Uh, but to me as a child getting access to that world that no no one i was growing up with got to see got to go inside when they're five six seven years old and spend saturday mornings with these big strong tough old irishmen and my dad in the middle of it all and them looking up to him and listening to them curse and you know spit and i'd go get coffee for them and they'd throw like coins at me it, that that being around that made it feel like so it was, it felt like such a cool privilege for me. And even though it, I wouldn't call it an angelic place, it felt like a, a version of heaven.
0: In Harper's, I think it was, he wrote, you can get kicked out for not drinking to excess at McSorley's.
1: It is true. It depends on the time, uh, yeah. but it, it is a place where it, the business re- relies on volume. And while I think people are generally try to be courteous and give people space. Uh, when it comes down to it, there's this ticking when you're working there, especially sort of a almost a ticking, ticking down the clock sense of if you see a group at a table that has ordered a couple of rounds and they're, you know, they're done but they're not leaving and people keep coming in and you see them go to the other tables with the other waiters and you just feel it you're like oh my god there goes all the money is, is going right there um and you try not to let that uh you know force you to do anything too rash but it just it just puts a little bit of pressure on and uh and yeah when it's busy you, it's really hard to sit down there and 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 take up a table you know you can tell people hey stand you know stand at the bar stand you know find another piece of space but Right now we gotta we gotta get this ale out. That's what we do.
0: I love how the bartenders when you order beers there there's a you get a fistful of beers. It's such a McSorley's thing. They bang it down in front of you, and there's no better sound than those beers hitting the bar.
1: Yeah, just the the either 16 or 20, you know, at the current record with the mugs we have now is 24. Uh, but, you know, to get that many ales just dropped at the table in front of you and, you know, it's the bartender, you know, the bartenders, the waiters, they, they, they everyone looks at them like, oh my God, how did you just do that? And you know, the, the table there, everyone's cheering, and, you know, the, the the foam is overflowing. It's, it's like a giant puddle now. It is a, it's a scene, it's a smell, it's a sound that you make mentioned it is it's it's part of the performance you know and and so is so is that sort of gruff attitude that we were talking about a a minute ago I've been when I started working there I I was young I was I was probably you know my first shifts were when I was 19 20 and I didn't want to be I, I was trying to be polite and people and I had customers complain to me that I was What's wrong with you, man? Why are you being so nice? I came to McSorley's to have an old Irishman to tell me to shut the F up and drink the damn ale.
0: I love that so much. So you actually, in your very early years, lived above the bar with your parents. And then later, when you you moved away, your father would get home probably late-ish at night. But you'd hear him come in, and then you'd go downstairs and talk to him. And what stories would he tell you? Because from what I understand from reading your book, those late night meetings with your dad inspired a love of storytelling in you and and sort of gave you, um, I don't know, it brought you closer to McSorley's as well, I suppose, and maybe to your dad as well.
1: Oh, absolutely, I think. Um, you know, I think it is an extension of that twisted version of Heaven idea because I knew that if I could wake up when my father would arrive home sometime between two and three in the morning, uh, he would still be wired up from the shift. You know, he, he needed a half hour to wind down and, and get ready for bed. And I could just go and ask him, hey, what? who came in tonight? What did you see? And hear all these stories of New York nightlife. And this was, you know, this would have been in the late 80s, early 90s, when New York still had, it wasn't the, the, the truly, uh, the dangerous New York of the the late 70s, but it still had this grittiness to it so you would hear stories. Oh yeah we had to yeah we had to kick out you know six bikers today and send them back to the back to the Hell's Angels Club on third Street. And you know or you know these Australians came in and someone they wanted they drank so much they threw up all over the cat and you know just like it was <laughs> telling me that you know, the poor cat ran away and you know we're not gonna see it for three weeks. I mean and just they were the funniest stories I'm sure my father like I've seen it over the course of my life and this is a common trait of uh, McSorley's uh, employees you know barman and and in Teresa's case the the, the lady of the bar um they're good embellishers they're they're willing to, to to eke out some some more color of us from a story uh when when they can and and so i'm sure he he added a little bit of mustard on those <laughs> on those stories but i, I again it just not only i think did it bring me closer to him and the bar and it fit into the, the way i thought of the place um i actually think even obviously i wasn't conscious of it at the time i think it helped uh kind of formed the idea, the, the love of storytelling that contributed to me wanting to write as I grew older. you know it, it, well I, when I started discovering books and other stuff and, and, and when those two worlds came together, it I think I really do think there is a, a relationship going that far back.
0: Well, your father studied creative writing, wrote some novels, And some pretty trippy ones from what I, from what I understand Uh, the, like the Ferlinghetti inspired book that had no punctuation Uh, the book about the 200 pound rats invading New York, all that kind of thing, Uh, all in different styles, all kind of unbound imagination coming out. But for most of the time that you were growing up, he didn't write. And I guess he would pass the stories along to you orally but there was a he he, you didn't see him sitting at a typewriter and writing because he he had put that part of his life aside for a little while
1: yeah um i think you know it's it's that's i probably that is common you know uh you you have a family and then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you have less time to do that other stuff i think um he a lot of his writing uh, when he wrote those novels was occurred when he was still drinking, you know, and he stopped drinking, uh, actually, you know, while he was at the bar uh, before I was born. But still, uh, I th- there was a part of him, I think, that associated the writing life with his drinking life. And it, it I think it may have actually taken him uh, in literally a couple of decades to, get feel comfortable enough that if he started writing again, seriously, he wouldn't um, feel the, the, you know, associate the, 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 the practice of writing with the habit of drinking because he, he, you know, he, he hasn't, he hasn't, you know, he's been sober for over 40 years.
0: I find it interesting that in the early days of his sobriety, he worked in a bar and I thought how difficult that must be. And I was wondering if that was just the trial by fire, if I can do it here, if I can work this job and not drink, I can, I can exist in the rest of my life as well.
1: I think that's an, I think that's true. Like if you get through that, then you will be able to handle the other, you know, um, difficulties, challenges, trials of, of wanting a drink and, and, and holding back. It's also true that among People who are career bartenders or working or waiters in bars—people who work in bars pretty much for their entire lives—they either get sober at some point in time, or are problem drinkers. And there's maybe this tiny sliver of folks who are able to, you know, still still drink regularly and socially, but don't have never cross over into it being an issue in their lives. But it seems like if you're in the business, let long. You, you end up meeting a lot of people you know who who have gotten sober and, and that was actually McSorley's was a place that supported a lot of um, a, a lot of people in those positions because not only my father but um, you know um, Matthew Marr, the, the owner, what had gotten sober on the job like my dad, and consciously sought out uh, people in his life who needed a second chance who were um, who were trying to, to turn them turn their lives around and kick a habit. And would you know even and would put them you know start them in the kitchen start them uh, on overnight shifts you know give the basically give them a routine to help them stay clean and then if they stuck with it a lot of them would eventually spend years working at the bar too so there was a lot of sober guys there.
0: <laughs> the wishbones are legendary within the 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 legend of McSorley's. And I tell that story in the podcast, but you were there when they cleaned the wishbones. So the Department of Health comes in and says, you can't have these century-old dusty things hanging above the bar anymore. They get taken down, they get cleaned. Tell me what it was like when they were cleaned. I, I've I've read your writing about this and I found it really kind of touching because it was different. It felt different, right?
1: Absolutely. Um, so this the background of this, this would have been in what, around 2000, in the, the late Bloomberg era of New yeah, York. like you know?
0: 2010, 2011. Exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. That was when the city began grading uh, every bar, restaurant, establishment, which is, I mean, it probably wise public health and public, you know, cleanliness or whatever measure. But practically, as, as practically at, at the bar, at least, it often felt absurd because it just meant that someone from the city would show up every six months or so unannounced and go through and come up with a list of 10 violations that they found that that sometimes seemed pretty absurd like the one i remember one year it was they found a a a, like a rodent dropping like in the basement freezer and it's so you were just sort of like what what, look at the the," or there was dust down there and it's like this is a 150 four-year-old bar at the time what are we talking about here um or they came in on a on a packed saturday night once and cited the kitchen it was in the summer so it was humid cited the kitchen that the, the one chef in there trying to balance you know 50 cheese plates uh, a griddle full of burgers chili all of, doing all the multitasking like mad and cited cited the kitchen for having a, a fly buzzing around and it's like do you want him to chase the fly around in the middle of this? You, you walk through this bar that is louder than a freight train right now. What do you, what, anyway, there was this, but, and there, we always had this sort of creeping dread that one year uh, an inspector would arrive and point to the wishbones and say, Oh, you know, that you've got, that's got to go because for my entire life up to that point, the wishbones had been covered in a layer of, Um, dust about one inch thick all around. I mean, they looked like they had grown fur. People would look up at them and say, where are the the wishbones? And be staring dead at them and not be able to recognize them because it just didn't click in their head that that they were wishbones covered in what at the time was uh, about 90 years or more than 90 years of dust. The rule was never touch the wishbone. That was the one thing that we were allowed to, if you see someone going for the reaching up for the wishbones, you can grab them. Like you can tackle them, like try not to hurt anyone, but you can, you can grab someone. Don't let them, don't let them touch the wishbones. Um, and there was, so, so eventually yeah, a health inspector came in and said, we had to take the dust off the wishbones. What if dust fell into someone's mug of ale? And we said, well, We'll give them, well, we'll pour out the ale and give them a free glass. We'll give them two free glasses of ale to make up for it. Um, but that was obviously not the, the principle of it. I worked the shift before the dust came off and we were all talking about it amongst ourselves. My my father, myself, um, I remember Michael Brannigan, Mickey the the waiter that night. And we were we're like, there's no way we're going to do this, right? There's, there's no way. It, because this was kind of like a, a rule, a law in my life. I was thinking, well, we have... We have a lot of support from the press. The you know the New York Post will get on our side. Dan Barry at the New York Times had written a column at the uh, about the wishbones a few years ago, and. It's like well, we should call up the we should call these call these guys up and have them you know ha- put some heat on the city so maybe they back down or maybe we'll build like a glass plexiglass case under it to to or move it back behind the bar anything but touch the wishbones and we I, I left that night thinking that was the case and then lo and behold I was working the the next day came in around 5 p.m. to start my shift and saw the wishbones were naked and. You know, just about fell down, and it's like, what what happened? And what it turned out after we all left around, you know, three that night. Matty Marr, the owner, came in and decided to sort of take it upon himself to to do it because he sort of knew that all of us were, thought that it was it was unthinkable. It was just not an option to clean this, um, and he sort of made the decision that. We're not going to start a war with the city over this. It's not smart in the long term, which is probably correct. Um, and took them home to, to, to his place and que- actually cleaned them there on the bar, um, dusted them very carefully, gathered the, the dust that remained, uh, swept it into a Ziploc bag, and brought it home with him to queens uh, so so he so the family still has the dust the 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 memory of that is still there and then rehung the wishbones and while i remember being feeling betrayed in that moment but also seeing over time that it it really wasn't the dust that made the wishbones. It was the story and the place and the history that made the wishbones. And that the, the way we had been telling the story that, and that dust has been there for 90 years. And that's, that, that belongs to those guys' legacies then became The story of, you know, yes, we had to do what the city asked, but it was so precious to us that the owner came in and took it about himself to sort of, you know, carry all that pain to do the thing that none of us ever wanted to do for the sake of the bar.
0: So much of the legend of McSorley's, uh, for me anyway, came from reading Joseph Mitchell. The old house at home is not only a fantastic document about what McSorley's was and still is in a lot of ways, uh, but it's also just such a beautiful piece of writing. I mean, this guy could write. Uh, And he came to McSorley's up until about 1996 uh, in when he passed away. Do you remember him coming in at all? Are are you, were you familiar with him?
1: I I was familiar probably before I I should have started caring. because my I, I remember on holidays on Christmases my father sometimes would give me one of and before before Mitchell republished um you know the, some of the collections that came out, you know they republished uh, McSorley's Wonderful saloon as a collection then the old then then the, the big omnibus collection old you know the, it was called the old house at home right oh no, no um up in the old hotel is what the 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 collection is called those came out after that in the late 90s so my father would bring home the old the, some of the original some of the, he he would look up and find a an old or first edition of these books and give it to me as sort of like you'll you'll understand why this is important someday on a christmas and i'd be like i don't want to read this i'm eight years old but yeah i remember being in the bar sometimes and they you know they would when i was very young people would point him out and say oh that's 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 joe that's joe mitchell you know um he's you know and, and yeah you know, that's the writer and then uh, a little later on i was old enough when uh when the the, the McSorley's wonderful saloon was republished. He he came in and and held a, a signing there and attended that. So I did get to see him. I didn't in the time you know when in the time that our lives overlapped, I did not appreciate him like I grew to. Um, but I still consider myself lucky to have you know seen him and mm-hmm. and sort of just been in the room when he was there.
0: There's a line that you have that I think sounds like something uh, that he could have written and. Uh, this is from the Harper's article that you wrote about your dad. And it says, uh, the men and women who are drawn into the bar's orbit typically arrive with some scars. And when I read that, I mean, I, I understand what it means. But what do you think it says about McSorley's?
1: I think that it means, uh, you know, it, it is it, like a lot of bars, especially the the um, old traditional saloon, pub, you know, that the, 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 McSorley is, of course, is a landmark now, but it grew out of a neighborhood place and it grew out of the Bowery, one of the, basically, you know, the, the place that was the most densely packed yeah. with uh, bars and flop houses and and every kind of vice and sin you could think of. I mean, to to read you know another a great another great book, Luc Sante's *Low Life*, which which really describes that that era. And and you read descriptions of many bars there that sound exactly it's almost exactly the same as McSorley's. Um, but so it grew out of that. And really, it's that that ethic that you know you 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 give everyone a chance regardless when they come through those doors. Um, and that doesn't mean you let them walk all over you, but you don't immediately go to whatever is wrong with them, whatever their demons are, whatever, whatever wrong things they've done wrong in the past. You know, they, when you come in there, you can be, you know, greeted warmly and and listened to, and people will, you know, tell your story. And yeah, it's 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 a, it's a place for it's a place where misfits are welcome because, um, you know, you, you need you need a place like that.
0: You don't live in New York uh, right now. When you go back, do you still stop by McSorley's?
1: Oh, yeah. Every every time um, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, we still we've always lived near the bar. My father uh, really up until, uh, you know, COVID hit was still working there. So I would go and and we'd, you know, I'd go to, you know, hang out while he was working. Um, and. Yeah, I I also I go because like we were talking about the way New York changes so fast. um, It's in some ways a melancholy thing for me. But like most of the people I grew up with in New York, the kids I went to school with, the guys on my basketball teams, yeah, they either don't live and they can, you know, nobody can afford to live in the city anymore in a lot of cases. So a lot of. The, a lot of the people I associate with my New York are, are gone, um, not from the world and I still am in touch with them, but it's not going home, it's not like we all can get together because they might not be there when I'm there. Uh, McSorley's is the one enormous exception to that where I, I can walk into that place and every night or every day there is someone working there who has known me? You know, saw me when I was five years old, and they were twenty or thirty, or whatever, and they are much older now, and I'm much older now. Um, but there's, you know, the it's very rare, I think, not just in New York, but in all, all really, a lot of the world, to have a place where people have known you for that long and you're that comfortable and you can just go in and and sort of see this extended family in one place uh and and that 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 means a lot to me and i I, i'll always be going back you know uh, for that
0: i really enjoyed talking to rafe he's got such an interesting and unique perspective on a place that i love I call this episode, Saving Dust, The Story of McSorley's because I love the respect the owners of the bar give to the place's history, artifacts, and even the dust that collected on the wishbones that hang above the bar. My thanks to Rafe Bartholomew. Check him out at Fox Sports, where he is the Senior Features Editor for Digital. And don't forget to read his books, Basketball, A Love Story, Pacific Rims, and of course, Two and Two, McSorley's My Dad and Me. And a big thank you to Anastasia Miller from Mixolany.com for sharing her story about the ladies' room at McSorley's, or I mean, I guess that should be the lack of a ladies' room in McSorley's on her first visit. You can also hear Anastasia on my Harry's New York Bar episode. I also want to thank the Last Call Players for helping me bring the story of McSorley's to vivid life. That's Bob Reed as District Court Judge Walter R. Mansfield, Andy Stinton as the Five Points narrator, Nick Mariano as Joe the Cop, and Jason Agnew as Joseph Mitchell. My biggest thanks, of course, goes to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk about a legendary bar, which also happens to be the place I got married, Sardi's Restaurant in New York City.
2: If you give a hat check girl less than a quarter, she'll give you a look that you will carry around with you for the rest of your nightclubbing days.
0: Dorothy Kilgallen wrote in 1942, Brother, it's a dirty one. I'm Richard Krebs. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon.